This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. Welcome to a Joycast from Joy 94.9. Visit joy.org.au to find out more about our Joycasts. LGBTIQ spoken word events from Australia and from around the world. I'm Dean and this is The Cheap Seats, podcast edition. Thanks for joining me. In this podcast, we are in Melbourne for a panel discussion called No Curry, No Rice. It is a discussion that looks at sexuality, ethnic stereotypes and racism in our LGBTIQ communities. It explores the question of the boundary between personal preference and racism and explores it from a male perspective. The discussion is brought to us by the Australian LGBTIQ Multicultural Council and was featured in the program for the 2015 Midwinter Festival, a Melbourne festival that celebrates queer arts and culture. But for now, let's grab our seats and listen to No Curry, No Rice from the Cheap Seats on Joy 94.9. So in my preparation, I looked up the definition of racism. So according to the Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission in 1998, they defined racism, um, I'll read it, racism is an ideology that gives expression to myths about other racial and ethnic groups that devalues and renders inferior those groups that reflects and is perpetuated by deeply rooted historical, social, cultural and power inequalities in society. So, leading into our first question, Shinnan, does having a personal preference imply discrimination? Is discrimination racism? So, first of all, I'm not particularly interested in policing people's preferences, so we can get that right out of, out of the way. I'm also not interested in pretending that we're not racist. Okay, so that's the other thing. So I would say discrimination happens. It is an implicit part of being human and the way that we choose to categorize one another. There are forms of discrimination which have extremely racist implications. I think all of us are complicit in that to some degree. And that said, I am also really interested in celebrating the many ways that we can love each other in diverse ways. Thank you, Shannon. Buddy. Considering your interest is addressing the complex relationship between race and sexuality in an Australian context, I thought you could address the question, is discrimination racism? Look, it's, it's a very um, difficult question to answer straightforward because you're trying to put the word discrimination and racism under this one big umbrella as if they are equal place. It is not equal place because racism is historically rooted in a deliberate attempt to make one particular race superior to a different races or a different particular race. So in Australian context, we're talking about the Caucasian race to be more superior than any other races in the world with this island mentality. 
that is different to the way race relationships or race, race relations work in a different part of the world, in Asia. Some Asian countries are quite racist as well. We are racist towards people from a different race. So whether discrimination and racism is the same thing, to a short answer will be yes, but in a different level because discrimination comes in a different way. I can discriminate someone within my own race because they're coming from a lesser socioeconomic status. So, Buddy, do you think that discrimination is an outcome of racism? Look, I think, um, and, and I said this many, many times, I'm going to be, um, you're going to hate me after tonight. Discrimination is part of our human nature. As a human nature, we discriminate against something. Who we discriminate against is social construct. So if when I grew up, I grew up believing that or being taught to discriminate against certain certain social group in my own culture, in my own race, that's who I learned to discriminate. So the thing with discrimination and also the thing with racism is one thing that we can do, we can actually unpack it and unlearn it. We can always kind of question ourselves. So I grew up from a certain background, and I've been taught a certain things. Now, is it okay for me to discriminate people based on what I know? The answer is, well, how willing are you to address that discrimination? If you're willing to address the discrimination, then let's take it one step ahead and one step forward. How willing are you to, to, to address racism and to understand how your own race has been constructed and how you grew up? within your own racial groups have an impact on how you view other races. I'm, I'm not giving you a straight answer, I know. You all look so confused. <laughs> but is it part of it? Yes. Is it the same? I would say no, because racism, we need to address more about this concept of race. Race in itself is a very complicated concept. Discrimination in itself is another concept. So to put it together, we can but the danger of that is we are overlooking so many different things that actually contribute to, let's say, the word discrimination. You know, race is just one of it. Sex is another one. Gender is another one. Socioeconomic status is another one. So what can we do? How can we address racism and discrimination in the same context while also at the same time addressing different parts of discrimination that exist in our society? Thank you, Puri. Mohammed, do you, do you believe that racism is an innate thing, or uh, <laughs> I know sorry. you have an opinion on uh, this, I, so that's I, why I asked. I internally scoffed at that notion. Um, I don't. Uh, <laughs> now, if you don't do, if you don't say it, it's, it's polite, it's fine. Anyway, uh, so one thing I don't like is. Uh, this notion of like turning racism down, I think that discrimination is a byproduct of racism because when you discriminate the any ism that you can attribute it to, so it 's really irrelevant why you 're discriminating because you 're already inflicting damage mm-hmm. so the fact that it is part of uh, of human nature or nature or whatever we have transcended nature, I believe that we have transcended nature a long time ago in, in terms of identity and in terms of realizing who we are. For example, when I am being an awful person, I can stand in judgment in my own action and be like, well, that was not a nice thing to say. And, you know, I mean, like, that's not something that nature taught me, that that is something that I have brought into my character as a person. Um, so I believe that it is the fact that a long time ago you had to be like... Um, you had to discriminate against other social groups to survive as um, as a certain gene pool doesn't really make it okay that 
today, like after all these years and after we have evolved and that way it's not completely necessary to take someone else down for you to survive, it's not, it's not okay, that's why I... Okay, so you, cool. be- you believe that it's a learnt behaviour? Yes, okay. certainly. Gary, would you like to comment? Sure. So I've been a racist myself. Growing up in Zimbabwe, I was actually scared of black people because when I knew that I was gay and in Zimbabwe it's actually legal to be gay, the context that I've been in is that black people are the people who are going to be my oppressors. So it was a context that I was in. And when you're young, you don't even know that you're in that context. It's something in the back of your head and sometimes unaware of it until it comes to the foreground and only then did it come to the foreground, am I able to, was I able to do with it and create the possibility of you know, being free and love and connection. So, yes, sometimes the, you know, the context that we come from can actually create the attitudes we have towards different people. And unless we create a future for us to live into, then it perpetuates the, the status quo. I'm going to bring you back to the um, first question. Does having a personal preference imply discrimination? I think it's important to define what um, preference is as well. So to my understanding, preference is when you have a particular um, liking for a, um, a particular thing over another, right? Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean you are excluding someone. Um, and I think, pre- I don't know, preferences do exist. And often there is a racial undertone to it as well. And I think it allows um, allows you to push them boundaries for racism and discrimination. Um, I think it comes down to the way someone goes about it. Mm-hmm. There's a way about a way about things you can you can go about things, um, the intent and the delivery. Um, so I think having preferences doesn't necessarily mean that you're a racist, but the way you go about it could suggest otherwise. Yeah. Okay. Um, Andrew? Yeah. Um, so going back to the um, discrimination and racism sure. thing, um, something I learned in high school psychology was that um, a preference, um, sorry, prejudice is the attitude and discrimination is when you act on it. So when you write on your profile, no Asians, that's an act of discrimination. Um, and therefore, while having the preference isn't racist in itself, I think to put that on your profile, to act out those thoughts in your head, that's a racially discriminating act. And um, one argument I've heard a lot of gay people say to justify their racism, they're like, I'm not attracted to women. Does that mean I'm sexist? And I just want to point out like, that that's a false equivalence and you can't compare the two because your sexual orientation, that is innate. And... You see animals, plants, they're, they're gay, and it's just something that naturally occurs. Whereas a sexist attitude is something you learn, so you can't compare that with being attracted to men or not being attracted to women. So, yeah, that just derails the argument. But back to the racism issue. Um, if you're going to write things like 
you know, Asians on your profile, you have to be prepared that you're making it about, you know, you're making it about race by putting that there and people are going to perceive it as racist. So whether you intend to be racist or not, that's the way you're being perceived. Um, yeah. Yep. So yeah, that's what I... Yep. Um, Arjun, you're next off the... Um, yep. Next cab off the rank. All right. Um, yeah, so um, I thought about this when, when you sent us the questions. And uh, to me, well, when I came to Australia, which was three years ago, um, I, like anybody else, I came with a set of preferences because of my cultural background, because of my educational background, because of my ethnic background, because of the complexities of the society I came from. And I came with those preferences and prejudices for sure. But what I encountered for the first time was overt expressions, like everyone has said, you know, overt expressions of those prejudices. And that, for me, was a new experience. Like, people did not articulate it so blatantly when back where, where, where I was. And uh, that took a bit of processing for me. So preferences don't equate to racism to me. Preferences are preferences because we are trained in, in certain ways of thinking and, and because of the structures around us. But what, when it does become discrimination and when it does become racism is when it's expressed in, in such a way as to vitiate the atmosphere for another person or another group of people. And um, so I wouldn't say pref- having preferences uh, is racist in itself, although you can argue it's based on ideas of racial superiority, etc., or desirability. Uh, but the act of expressing it in a vitiating manner is in fact racist. So do you think the average, and, and look, this is going to sound disrespectful and I'm, I'm not, but do you think the average punter doesn't process it that way? Because I was reading something the other day and some guy was arguing for him being able to put on his profile, no Asians. So, I mean, is that, and anyone jump in here, is that because of the Anglo culture, the <laughs> predominant culture that we live in? This is, this is an analogy that I keep repeating over and over and over again, and I, I am, I'm fully aware that I'm borrowing this analogy from a dear volunteer of mine um, at work, because the way he explained to people is very succinct, and I like to repeat it again. It's a preference when you are given options. You like all of those options, but you prefer one or two. But if those one or two are not available, you're still okay with the other ones, right? That's a preference. Where it becomes a discrimination is when you don't even look at the other options. You only have one few. This is what I like. The rest, not interested. And I am going to verbalize it. I'm going to writing it down. I'm going to communicate it to the other person to make sure that they know. That, for me, is a discrimination. And that, for me, is a blatant discrimination. And yes, there's a, raci- there's a racial element in it that when it becomes racism. That's how I like to anal- put it. Or to put it simply, when I walk up to the bar, the kind of beer that I like is not there. Will I say no to the other beer? No. I just go with the other ones, whatever they have. That's my preference. I prefer one thing, but it's not available, so I just go with whatever I have Thank left. You. And I'll still like it the same. Do, do I think people don't think about it? Of course people don't think about it. Because thinking about it means that I, myself, thinking about it means that I have to unlearn what I've learned. I have to unpack what I believe. I have to rethink everything that I've been grew up with and taught. 
and I have to reposition myself in a new context. A lot of people, for a lot of people that I spoke to, it's a lot easier to say, I'm not being racist, it's just a preference, because it doesn't challenge their ideology. It doesn't challenge the concept and the intellectual behind it. And once again, I keep saying this, none of us like to be called a racist. Well, guess what? Including myself, all of us have some kind of racist element in us, because unfortunately, Racist ideology and racist belief have been taught to all of us in one way or another. And there's a reality that we have to feel comfortable with so we can challenge it, so we can question ourselves and to make life for the future generation better. If we are keep sugarcoating it and hiding it, we're not going anywhere. We're just going to go around and around in a circle and having this conversation 20 years from now because we are too scared to admit what we know. Thank you, Budi. I think Shannon wanted to um, make a comment. kind of wanted to respond to that. I really appreciate how Budi is so slut positive. I just kind of, I'm just a bit curious, sorry, because I've worked in sexual health and in community groups. I just kind of wanted to do a little temperature check and see if there's anyone in the room who's familiar with group agreements. It's that sort of thing that you do when you're just like in a room of like 20 people and the first thing you do to condition the way the conversation will move forward, you know, all phones on silent, you know, show up on time. You don't need to ask permission if you need toilet breaks, you know, group agreement. It's a very civil way of conducting connection with other people, I think. I've had the privilege of um, working a little bit in LGBT settings in San Francisco. I used to work for this queer youth organization called Lyric. One of the things I really enjoyed about that space was um, being exposed to a number of group agreements that I hadn't uh, learned about before. One of them, for example, is one mic, one diva. So one person speaks at a time. Another one, which, <laughs> another one which might be more relevant for this conversation is called don't yuck my yum. So basically, you know, don't verbally express your disgust for my preferences. Yeah. So particularly if we're working in the context of sexual health or with a, with a range of queer people, with a diverse range of ways that we fuck and love each other, you know, um, I think it's especially important to really consider what that means not only in like the group setting but in terms of the practice of democracy and the, pra- the practice of being in solidarity with one another and for that matter the practice of liberating our own desire what happens when we moderate our not only when other people don't have to worry about people expressing disgust but what happens when we actually practice moderating our own experience of disgust you know, so that we actually create space for people to be liberated in their own desires so that to me is quite Fundamental, actually, because I, you know, just riffing off of what Andrew just said, that you know, it's a false equivalence to say, you know, uh, you know, if I'm a gay man and I'm not necessarily primarily attracted to women, that's not not that's not the same as sexism. I would agree with that. I don't think that's the same as sexism. However, there are ways in which my primary attraction to men can manifest in ways that are extremely sexist. If I'm going around bashing vaginas, if I'm bashing women, if I'm bashing femininity, that's sexist. So similarly, if you have particular preferences on the basis of phenotype, uh, if you like beards and I don't have one, or if you like you know, this and that, and you might see that there's particular groups of people who are more likely to have that than others, etc., it's one thing to have your preference, and it's another thing to actually articulate it in the language of disgust. 
which actually not only doesn't create a civil space for other people to be liberated in their own desire, but there's something actually fundamentally violent that's going on in your own sense of yourself. So a gay man who can articulate his attraction to other men in ways that's actually liberated from, from sexist articulations is actually more liberated in his own homosexuality. So that's one f- analogy that I would make. Um, so similarly, you can have your preferences on the basis of certain physical types, and you could also be liberated from your own disgust. The Cheap Seats for LGBTIQ spoken word events from Melbourne and the world every Thursday night at 10pm on Joy 94.9. Cheap Seats. Arjun, are ethnic hierarchies evident in our queer communities? And if so... Do they manifest themselves differently when people are looking for a casual relationship compared to a serious one? Yeah, this is very complicated. Well, firstly, I think that hierarchies, and especially ethnic hierarchies, are they are omnipresent in the sense that it's not uh, specific to the gay community. And I would say it's, it's across uh, society. And in that sense, it would be difficult for the gay community to not have those hierarchies within it. But it, it, would be, it would be difficult to expect the gay community to not have mm-hmm. what the broader community has. And the second part of that question where you say, I think when I, when I looked at these questions, I thought I must speak to my personal experience because that's the only sort of authentic source of knowledge I have as opposed to anybody, anything else. And I must say that when it comes to when I meet someone, I meet them with the expectation that this is a person I would be interested to know, even if it's for a short while or a longer period. Mm-hmm. And so I don't, like, when I approach someone or when I speak to someone online, for example, like, I, I think of them, I, I don't have different expectations regarding... Hook up. Yeah. Hook up and long term. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and when, it, when, when you relate this to the idea of ethnic hierarchies, no, I, if I don't approach, if I don't speak to... Uh, a person with the intention of judging them on the basis of their ethnic background. It doesn't matter if it's um, a hookup or if it's a long-term relationship. But do people actually practice this kind of uh, a differential approach? I think they do, but I am not sure how that... Like, someone has to tell me this is what it's like for me, for me to fully understand it. And no one has actually said it. Oh, I prefer to date this particular ethnicity, but I prefer to hook up with that particular, or, you know, I'm okay with. No one has actually explicitly told me this, so I can't, I don't know, but I'm sure it happens. Would someone else like to jump in? Well, it's a very, it's a very good question, um, and um, I, I have particular like, experience with it because uh, in a lot of my friendship groups, I am the token person of colour, as in, I was invited to a 21st the other day. And I was speaking to everyone. I was the only person of color. I was like, someone must have fucked up because I'm here. I was like, <laughs> like. Um, uh, however, like in regards to the hierarchy, the hierarchy is very uh, like apparent to. That sometimes it really is quite mind my language, like um, disgusting in that notion, because you have it's it's like it's apart from power. Even like we talk about two things: power, and then we talk about like uh, actual encounters. Mm-hmm. So some people would uh, would be like, I can tolerate looking at you and sharing a space with you as long as you don't talk to me, 
you know, they wouldn't say that, but you know, from the actions, you understand this, like this, like they actually distance themselves from that situation because they don't want to have to actually interact with you as a person. Some of them would be happy to chat with you, and then that filters out a few people as well. Some of them would uh, would love to have you as a pin pal, a friend, or some of them would just have sex with you because you know. It's like throwing your bone every now and then for a pet. So they don't feel racist. And then you laugh at this, but it's actually quite true. And like it happens so often, it's quite scary. And then um, it's only a very selected few that would view a person of colour as someone they bring home to their parents for many reasons. I really think, um, I know it's going to sound dramatic, but I think colonisation. Colonisation is a very like big factor. Uh, for instance, like being intimate with um, with another man was quite honourable in, in a lot of cultures, and then those same cultures are now segregated and being treated like second, uh, like um, rate queers because some like uh, white man thought they can teach everyone. When I say white, I don't like I mean like um, the Aryan dream. Uh, so they they thought they can teach everyone. It'd be like, okay, you you have the queer thing going. Let me show you how I can do it better than you. Uh, long-term relationships, some of them actually, like, know, like, they wouldn't... For instance, if you step out of that, like, circle they draw for you, they have to take you down a notch. For instance, if you if you talk to them as a friend and then you hit on them, they will get really defensive. It'll be like... Like, it comes across as, like, how dare you? It's what do you think? So I, is that your... Yeah. That's a personal experience that you Ah, that, that's... That, that, yep. Like, um, yeah, that's... Uh, that happens. And then you, you correspond that to actual... Because, like... It comes to my second point. It comes down to power. They actually do believe in a society where white people hold power because, for instance, um, and that's just like from my personal experience, when I uh, like came into office, a lot of people, like when I say officers in like queer office, a lot of people did not like it one bit. I only won because no one else wanted to take it on because it's a lot of work. And then, yeah, and then they, were, they, were, they weren't happy for it. And then, for instance, when I introduce myself, for instance, in a lot of, like, uh, feminist groups, they assume, like, you have all these assumptions that comes with the name. They assume, like, trigger warning, misogyny or transphobia, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. I'd be like, no, like, you, you haven't had a conversation with me. And, you might, like, and then, like, it becomes this, like, we have to maintain the power within the people who know how to do queer, who are the people who are not, like, you know, not like you mm-hmm. kind of thing. But uh, I, I, just, I do believe that those hierarchies exist, and I think that uh, the severity of them vary from one individual to another in terms of in the queer community. When I've been on Grinder, you know, some of the comments, the first thing I normally get is, "How big is it?" Or, <laughs> <laughs> is, it "Is it true what they say?" You know, or ask for a picture. So that's normally the first thing, and I know my other African friends also have that similar experience um, as well. So then the story that we create about it, and this is not necessarily the truth, is that we are only wanted for sex and not necessarily for in a relationship. So, but that's what I've made it mean, in a sense. So they, but that is the normal experience. But then when you talk to other people, that's, it's a different context altogether. So then we are left with we are good enough for sex but not good enough to be in a relationship, in, in essence. Um, at the same time, if I look outside, you know, just being the gay community, and just listen to what my mom and my dad would say to me, Rugare, work hard, it's a white man's world. You know, look at the way I speak, I speak with a fake British accent, look at the way I dress. You know, I'm already presenting myself so that I have the best 
possibility to be able to interact in the white man's world, which is the social context I've been brought into. And now that I'm able to see that that's just a point of view, I'm able to now choose something different because I can consider, what if, I'm, if I consider that, what if that point of view is not actually real? What can I create in this context for myself and my life? Regarding the hierarchies, I think it's very prevalent and all you have to do is just look at the media put out by the gay community. Um, just all the ads, magazines, TV shows, everything, it's mostly hot white guys and to the point where if you, you know, you see events for like a pool party or whatever and as a coloured person, I might look and think, I don't know if I feel welcome there because you're telling me it's some big white party and I think you see media like that and that definitely shapes how society thinks in terms of sexually and even romantically. Um, yeah, because you watch, you watch TV shows, gay, gay series, and you, know, you hear the white stories, lives, their experiences, their relationships, and then anyone who's not white is pretty much invisible. So you grow up thinking, seeing, being exposed to all these attractive images of white people, and that's what you connect... To, in your brain, you connect attractiveness, sexuality, romance with this white image. And this one example I thought of was basically think of think of like five hot celebrities or actors or you know hot white guys you'd probably want to have sex with and you can probably easily do that but then if you ask people to think of think of five hot asian guys you've seen in media you'd want to have sex with in you know what are their names and all that a lot of people would struggle and because there's that that connection is in your mind like you don't think of you think of sexuality romance um the connection the, the concept of an asian man or a colored man you know, for dating or sex, it's just not, you know, it's not a process that exists. If that makes sense, going back to the hierarchy, yeah. I think that manifests clearly in... So is there that feeling between, you know, cultural groups as well in terms of, I don't know, like a Chinese, the Chinese community, gay community being more superior to the, the Indian community, for example? My partner is Chinese yeah. <laughs> and I'm Indian. I don't think there's any of that, really. Um, I think in countries like Malaysia and Singapore, where, there's, where, those, where, are, where there are enormous socioeconomic uh, factors underpinning these perceptions, it can be more uh, pronounced. But generally in Australia, I don't think people would think that way. I think it would be odd and exceptional. What about um, Europeans compared to... Asians. Yeah, in terms uh, of... Uh, like, I'm just putting the question out there. Do you guys think that there are, there's a hierarchy that exists there? Mm, absolutely. Yep. Hierarchy. Once, on once again, hierarchy is one of those things that, that, is, that is constructed. It's one of those things that we learn. You know, we, we learn about the hierarchy from early age. I learn who i supposed to trust and who I should not trust and the hierarchy is not based on race when when I grew up the hierarchy is very much based on socioeconomic status it exists it exists within our ethnic communities and we have to own it we have to acknowledge it because I don't want this to be a white bashing session it's not if we want to address hierarchy let's address it from all different levels when it exists in, in the gay Asian community, there, is, there exists a hierarchy, whether it's socioeconomic status, whether it is race, ethnic, ethnicity, nationality, the hierarchy exists. So the problem that, we, that I find myself to keep going in the loop is as 
someone of minority, somehow there's an expectation for me not to challenge the hierarchy within the minority groups. The expectation is for me to challenge the hierarchy to the majority. And in my way of thinking, if we are not questioning ourselves in the minority group, then how do we question the bigger hierarchical hierarchical structure that exists in society? The, and the reason why I'm saying that is because if we want to challenge the bigger picture, the majority group, then we actually need to have a unified front. And to be able to have that unified front is to challenge what exists within our own. So we can actually present ourselves as a unified front. And we can actually say, yes, there is hierarchy within us, but this is also the hierarchy that exists on the bigger picture, on the broader level, that make us feel that we have to compete with each other to reach to the ultimate goal. And in Australian context, the ultimate goal is to be seen as the same as the Anglo-Australian. I keep hearing it over and over again, and unfortunately, I keep hearing it over and over again within the younger generations. Some of the younger generations that I speak to, they, some of them felt ashamed for not knowing an Anglo-Australian as friends. Some of them felt ashamed for belonging to a specific community group because the hierarchical structure dictates that to be able to pass as an Australian is to have this many Anglo-Australian friends to go out drinking and partying and do everything that the Anglo-Australian friends are doing. There is a problem. So how do we address that hierarchy if we don't also address the hierarchy within our own community where the mixed race are put on top of the pure race or you know the pure bread, as I like to call it? Uh, she's been hiding in the corner there, very quiet. Would you like to make comment on what the um, question or what people have said? I think I agree. So um, hierarchies exist in society, and um, that translates to a lot of communities that I am a part of in many different aspects of my life, including the queer community that I'm a part of. Um, does it manifest? It manifests in different ways, I think. Um, and I don't have any personal examples, but people who I've interacted with, I know someone who would say he would not date an Asian or an Indian, etc. But every now and then, he would say, oh, if I don't get lucky tonight, I'll just find myself an Asian. And, you know, that's... Like, I would challenge that. that. <laughs> no, but, um, you know, so hierarchies do exist, and it manifests in different ways. Um, and I think... It's important to question why it doesn't manifest in the first place. You know? yeah. Yeah. So, so why do you think it manifests? I think it's just inherent in the way we've... I've been brought up... So um, you mean inherent in that it's been taught to us and we're yeah. just so used to it that we don't In my personal um, upbringing, yes, definitely. And um, I've been brought up in a way that there are hierarchies that exist within the family, within the community... Um, and there's a way you can, I guess, um, translate it to different communities, and it does exist. Yeah. Okay. So, yep, go for it. Oh, 
Yeah, yeah, go for it. So, I grew up in a, a pseudo Eurocentric point of view. So, my whole life, I thought to be best was to go out of the white guy. And, you know, that was really what was running my show date a white guy, then you feel you're in, like you've, you've won in life. And then what I got to see for myself was that um, that was not real, that was running my show. And who I was for myself was unlovable, not worthy. So it was the context that I was living in who I, for myself that made me pursue it that way. And then when I started to see for myself that actually, you know, I am lovable and I can get to choose who um, I could be with. So I would never even have considered going out with an Asian person beforehand at all. And it wasn't coming from a context of I don't like Asians. It was just because for who I was for myself was unlovable and trying to get somewhere. And then when I got that for myself, I was able to say, actually, I'm missing out on so many opportunities. Human beings are human beings. All males are just males. And, you know, I am not my body. You know, we just have this body. I'm black, you're Asian, you're white. And we're more than that. So then now I look forward to actually being, meeting different types of people and discovering who they are because we are not our bodies. I'm going to jump in there. Would you take... So do you discriminate in terms of... Um, would you take an Asian man home to meet mum and dad? Or Absolutely. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. Shannon, in fact, my you... former partner was Asian. You can find more Joycasts and show blogs. Go to joy.org.au. What are the commonly held queer ethnic stereotypes in our communities? Do they, do they impact on individuals adversely or do they empower them? Racial stereotypes. Uh, yep. So, okay, let's go for it. Do we need to open that up, unpack that? We need to unpack that because where is racial stereotypes coming from? Where is the image of all Asian men being effeminate coming from? And say someone who crosses his legs perfectly. Um, you know. <laughs> <laughs> And very, very effeminate. You know, look, I'm, I'm very, I've been very, very open in public to say that I am an effeminate gay Asian man. That is me. That is who I am. I've been effeminate since the day I was born. I am not going to apologize for that. Now, as someone said it, I can't remember. But why do you say that you're effeminate? Because I just am. I, I just am because in the but concept of indi- isn't that feeding into that whole stereotype? If you're well, okay. just because of your and I'm sorry to put you on the spot, but your mannerisms, etc., yeah. w- which are part of who you are, why are you saying that they are effeminate when they're just who you are? So I'm going to take this outside of the Australian context and putting it back to the Indonesian context. I am not fitting into the Indonesian context of masculinity. That's coming from my own culture. So even in Indonesia, I'm effeminate, and I'm quite proud to be effeminate in Indonesian context. Now, in that in itself, when I was living in Indonesia, that was sort of what puts me in a little bit of a situation when I got bullied and I got ma- I'm always made fun of because I was effeminate, right? But I, because it is my own culture, it is my own people, it is my own my own my own nation. I learned how to deal with it. Now the problem comes when I came to Australia, and then all of a sudden, that was it. I'm an effeminate gay Asian man, and all of a sudden, all these social labels being put on me. So the first one is, I'm gay Asian man. That's a social label, gay and Asian. And the second one is, I'm being effeminate. Now, 
where is that stereotypes coming from? Who created that stereotype that all Asian men, regardless of their behavior, regardless of their personality, have been emasculated? Where is that coming from? So we do need to start unpacking that stereotypes. Um, the same thing with African men, especially in, Amer- in the U.S. with the African-American men. Where is that stereotypes coming from where all of a sudden they are not seen as people? They're just seen as being based on their dick size. Do you I, think pornos have a lot to do with that? Is that is was there porn in the well, 1800s and 1700s? Well, no, but well, that's what. Sorry, can I, I don't want to open it up to the audience just yet. So, to cut, sorry to cut you off. If you could remember the question that would or your comment that no, would. No, but be I great. think his comment was right. I'm assuming it's a he. I'm not sure who spoke. Like he, she, they, whatever. Um, yeah. So the, the comment perpetuates it. So the the, the the porn industry plays on it. Plays on already existing stereotype. Now, we need to understand that because I can't rem- – once again, I can't remember who said this, but I still remember it very, very succinctly. The, the problem with stereotypes is not that it does not exist. It just applies to all of us. The generalization. The generalization. So my other gay Asian friends who are stereotypically masculine go out to the gay scene, and the first question is, are you a bottom? If you're not a bottom, why not? Oh, you just haven't found the right top yet. I can be the right top for you. It's like, oh, how is that? What? You know, you just can't go, don't you want to know his name at least? <laughs> but maybe not because that's not how the gay sexual scene works. You know, we don't care about names. We just care about dick size, bump, shape, and whatever else. Um, so that's the problem with racial stereotypes is, is who created it? And I would like to empower us in this room. How can we start addressing it and challenging it? How can we start unpacking it within our own frame of mind about racial stereotypes? You know, how can I turn around to Arjun and say, Arjun, you're from... Um, where you're from? <laughs> I don't even know where you're from. <laughs> As in, where are you from? Where, you, where did you grow up? I grew up in the northeast of India. In the northeast India. Okay, so, right, in Indonesia, the Indian subcontinents have a different kind of um, racial stereotypes. So how can I unpack it to understand that my racial stereotypes about the Northeast Indian men is just it. It's a social construct. Yeah. Um, I just, uh, I'm going to jump to the second part uh, where, first, I don't want to dwell on the stereotypes because I'm sure everyone here can make a pretty good list. So the uh, second part of, sorry, the second part of the question was, do they impact on individuals adversely or do they empower them? Or, is that um, what you're addressing? Yes, that's yep. what I'm addressing. Um, I think any general sweeping statement is offensive to everyone whose that um, statement is applied to. Uh, you, um, the thing is, especially in a in an Australian community, you have this conditioning that happens with a lot of, uh, uh, especially people of colour who grow up here, and then you have these like I, I like I deal with them on a daily basis. This self-loathing, they actually view themselves as inferior to like the rest of society. Because they have been told they're inferior, and they are reminded every day. Every day they open an app like Grinder, and those are the people. Like anyone can get Grinder from like 15 years old. People will be on the app looking at being rejected, telling that they are not good enough. Um, it doesn't matter if, uh, like, say, I'm not concerned about the one percent that finds power and owns it, kind of 
arrangement. Like, you know, you're owning who you are, and that's, that's beautiful. Um, I'm more concerned about the 99% who is absolutely damaged by those stereotypes. They, like, they just, this systematic putting down of others and, like, and it's like dehumanizing when you, tell, when you make, uh, when you make, when you turn someone into a dildo with a face. That's very dehumanizing for an individual. And, for instance, if you do that for long enough, that's exactly how would they view themselves. And then they'll be only the only thing they're after. They see no um, prospect of a relationship, and they only think that they'll only be viewed as an object of desire, or non-desire in some cases. But is sometimes that a good thing? It is certainly not, because that is just... That is just as I said, like, it might be a good Don't thing. Don't we all want to be desired? No, but like, so, I, like, that's just like an occasion. Like, and then once that, that, that is fulfilled, once you have fulfilled the other, and then it leaves you empty because you've you're literally been reduced to an object. And as I said, like, very few like, get power out of that. And I don't think like, it is empowering. I think it's offensive. And I think it's, like, uh, it's the worst thing you can do to a human being is strip away their individuality because we're all unique. Uh, whether we believe it or not, but like m- my statement is like, who are you to tell someone they are just like all of their race? Like, just, just like it's just a question out there. I know that like it might be nice for some people who are just have sex, or uh, but um, one, don't represent your race, represent yourself, please, because like you know you don't don't speak for me. What I'm saying is like, if you want to be like that, sure. But yeah, cool. Okay, who would like to jump in now? Sure, go. I will. So when I came to Australia, I wasn't out, I wasn't gay. I didn't even have the language for it because there just wasn't. So my when I discover when I chose to discover what that was like for myself, you know, it was going late at night, meeting people late at night at their homes, you know, going to public toilets and all that sort of stuff. And I didn't grow up as a teenager thinking that is how my life was going to be. Um, but one of the things that was striking about, you know, from my 20s to my, my early 20s to my late 20s was how the gay commun- community perceived who I was, you know, a top, you know, the dildo, as you created it to be. And I bought into that as a way of empowering myself, as a way of being independent, and that used to fuel me. You know, I was even known in my, with my friendship groups as Rugare does whatever he wants whenever he wants, the independent woman, Beyonce, really. Um, <laughs> that's who I was. And I, but beneath that, I played into that. But what we all really wanted, and what I also really wanted and pretended I didn't want, was a relationship, to be in a loving relationship. That's all we all really want, and pretending we, we don't want that but because it's surviving the... Rugari, co- yes. when, when you go out, okay, I'm just saying, sure. if you were to go out for a, say, up to a sauna for a casual hookup, would you really care whether that... And I'm just asking. Sure. Would you really care whether that person treated you as a human dildo or, or not? Um, what's your... Well, no, because I'm out there to have sex. Right, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but you're saying that sometimes that... Because people have that attitude, it prevents it from well, going any further. I, I didn't. I wasn't being accountable for my own life. Right. So I take on the views of other people of who I'm expected to be. So re, you know, so not being responsible for myself and what I create and say who I am, really. Okay. But because that's always been happening. Yeah. 
You're listening to a Joycast from Joy 94.9. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.